0: So if if you're another way of putting this in the second half of life, and by that I mean anytime a person really gets conscious and starts reflecting on these matters, you have to ask yourself, what is worthy of my service? Because if you're not asking that, you're probably in service to things that are less worthy, such as pleasing your parents or running from their injunctions or trying to make a lot of money or something like that. And let's say you make a lot of money, you know, at the end of the day, so what?
1: around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self, and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Today you are in for a real treat. We have Dr. James Hollis visiting us. He is a speaker, a professor, a Jungian analyst, and a best-selling author of now 19 books examining life and how to cherish every moment. His world-renowned books, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, if you've heard of that one, The Eden Project, What Matters Most, Living an Examined Life have been translated into over 20 languages and today we discuss with him a life of meaning his latest that just came out this late July And a life of meaning examines the qualities that bring meaning to our human journey. I would say that that's what it is about in a nutshell, but you've got to hear this discussion that we have. Um, Just, we got a chance to just pick his brain and ask him questions that we have long wanted to if we had ever, ever had a chance to speak with him. So here you go, James Hollis. Dr. James Hollis, welcome to The Big Self Show.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you.
2: Uh, the pleasure is all ours. As I've mentioned, I've followed you and your work um, since I was in graduate school, which was back in the late 90s. And um, not only personally have benefited from it, but also professionally with patients and clients I've worked with um, over the years. So we are thrilled to have you here. We are uh, beyond elated to talk about your new book. I have read many of your books. Um, so yes, thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom of um, so many years that you've done been doing this work.
0: Well, thank you. Again, it's a pleasure to be with you and let's just dive into it.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: You know, um,
1: well, what we've been doing for the very first question with all of our guests in season 5 is to hit them over the head with this big question of to you Dr Hollis what first comes to mind when you hear the expression or or phrase big self or living in your big self
0: mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I was curious that you even use that title when you invited me to join you today. I'd be curious to how you use the term. Um, Using it in a strictly quote Jungian fashion, we would wanna differentiate between ego consciousness and the self with a capital S that is the sort of architect of our being. The capital self does everything from manage your cellular changes and so forth to your experiences of emotion and cognition and and so forth. So in a strictly psychological sense, um, we would use the term self as the central organizing wisdom, essentially your core nature seeking its expression in the world. And there are two dimensions to that. One is in fact, seeking the fuller expression of who you are in the world uh, as nature sees it, not as society sees it. And and, and secondly, it's a self-healing system. So it's seeking always to repair the damage that life does to us on a daily basis. Now, I believe you're using the word big self in a different way than I just did. And so if you're using it in the sense of, um, you know, what is that larger sense of yourself that you need to step into, that's quite a different question. Because we don't know the self. The self is, uh, you know, something transcendent to ego consciousness any more than you know the true nature of nature. You know, Mm -hmm. work and you experience it and you try to adapt to it. But most importantly is can you in some way step into a larger sense of yourself because many times, and forgive me for going on too long here, feel free to jump in at any moment, but many times people are understandably defined by their context. So people are damaged by racism, by sexism, for example, something that has nothing whatsoever to do with their inherent nature, and yet is a continuous um, atmosphere in which they move and breathe and try to function as well as the circumstances of life that bring to us um, those sort of adaptations that are both necessary and often self-estranging. So uh, the old cliche that we often become our own greatest enemy is is true. And that's why mm. it's, it's so repeatedly true. So I, I do think it's important for us to define how we're using the word self in any given paragraph or conversation.
2: Yeah, I love that the the framework, um, obviously, Jungian framework that you're using. I heard big, the concept of big self, I think probably 20 years ago now, in a Zen Buddhist concept, mm-hmm. in kind of juxtaposed with the little self. And I was so intrigued by that, this, the little self, kind of the attachments, um, the identity that I saw myself that I thought was myself, And then the reality of uh, there is this inviolate uh, big self, like, what is that? What is the big self? And then the paradox of that, that I've since learned since then, is there is a a letting go of the idea of being big. Um, It has to happen for you to inhabit your big self. And so the paradox, I had really no idea that there was such a paradox to this work um you know until very recently that actually becoming truer means letting go it actually means there's a humbling part of that process um so i the play on the word is something that we talk about quite a bit so yeah i appreciate your perspective on that
1: and perhaps you know i was well i was just thinking um that You know, in your book that we're talking about today, um, you know, A Life of Meaning, Mm -hmm. your, I believe, 19th book, uh, you you write that asking large questions Mm -hmm. gets us to a larger life. Mm -hmm. And maybe that kind of connects a little bit of the dots to what we are talking about when we're defining our terms of what we mean by big self. Uh, But could you explain what you mean by that?
0: Well, first of all, one might say in a very generalized fashion, the central project of the first half of life, and I'm using half very loosely, Mm -hmm. is to develop enough ego strength, enough sense of yourself in the face of all the obstacles that face you in the outer world, as well as your interior voices that are critics or or tend to be anxious and, and intimidated by the world but to develop enough ego strength to to leave home and to step into the world and to create a provisional life, you know, create relationship, career, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a point in the life of most people if they're allowed to live long enough where you sort of say, and and so I've done that, what what am I supposed to do now? Uh, Where do I go from here? And then you realize there's a different agenda in the second half of life because the first half of life is about adapting. You either follow the messages of your family and your culture, or you spend your life resisting them, but you're not immune to them. It's, you know, even if you went and lived as a, a, you know, a a recluse somewhere, you're you're still carrying that traffic within you. So in the second half of life, the central project is the recovery of a personal authority, that is Mm -hmm. to say, what, what is it that is calling to me from inside of me? So the world that we're born into says, well, you have to grow up and be a citizen and be a taxpayer, perhaps a parent and certainly a, a member of a relationship and a, and a citizen and so forth. And all of that's useful and valuable up to a point. But we're more than what's happened to us. We're more than our roles and our roles could be important or they need to be you know, changed. We outgrow them at times. But when you do that, you have to ask yourself, now, what is it really that is wishing to have expression through me? That's a different question. Mm-hmm. What do I want? But what wants to be you know, embodied in the world through me? And obviously, if a one has a certain kind of talent or interest or so forth, that's part of it. In other words, if I'm born with a musical talent, the world around me may or may not support that. But something in me yearns to express itself through music. And I serve the world best by submitting to that, even if there's a cost to that. Uh, and in fact, the creative process, you know, I, I, I'm fond of a, a um, comment by the late painter, Glenn, uh, uh, Close, who said, um, amateurs wait for inspiration. He said, the rest of us get to the studio early and get to work because it's hard work. <laughs> to serve what wants to come into the world through you. So if, if you're another way of putting this in the second half of life, and by that, I mean, anytime a person really gets conscious and starts reflecting on these matters, you have to ask yourself, what is worthy of my service? Because if you're not asking that, you're probably in service to things that are less worthy, such as pleasing your parents or running from their injunctions or trying to make a lot of money or something like that. And let's say you make a lot of money, you know, at the end of the day, so what? You know, all the cliches begin to you know, wind up on your front porch and to say, you know, but you, you've been here, you've done this. Why that sense of ache inside? Why that longing? What is it that you're missing in your life? And, and that's where life gets interesting. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think all of us are either, as I said, serving or running from the instructions of our culture in the first half, with some exceptions. But, but mostly in the second half of life, it's, it's about surrendering to something larger than our instructions, larger than our complexes, larger than our personal history. And to say, what is it that I need to uh, surrender to or something I need to serve that really is uh, the, the payoff for that is you experience that as meaningful. You know, there's a, usually a loss of meaning when people go through crises. What brings people into therapy are usually crises of meaning or that their strategies for coping are no longer working for reasons they don't know. And when that's the case, one finds oneself in those very difficult in-between times. Mm. I early on called it middle passage, uh, middle being between at the adolescent passage where you step into adult roles but may have still the psychology of the child and of course the final passage which is our mortality but somewhere in the middle is is a summons to ask the question but why am i here really and in service to what and that's a large question and the answers that begin to emerge over time will vary and evolve as one lives through the the various stages of one's journey thereafter
2: People can't see, but I'm, I'm I'm nodding my head off. Like all of this resonates so much. I want to ask you specifically about something that comes up quite a bit in our community. So we work primarily with those in the middle passage, um, a trough of despair. It's <laughs> the startup lingo for it. Um, that are really seeking answers, uh, but are, are in burnout. And, you know, and I I think that there's this compression that happens in a lot of times in middle age, just exactly as you're saying, Dr. Hollis, those uh, well-worn identities start to fade, like we're not quite sure what's next and we're in this weird in-between stage. But what I see happen a lot is in the confusion and the being lost in that place, there is a lot of externalizing looking for the answer. And so with clients, with people that are listening to this podcast, there's a lot of, um, well, this system is messed up. Um, the, a lot of victim consciousness, I guess I would say. So, so st- I love the idea that you just said about the personal authority. And so I'm curious if you could speak to people that are in this place that are struggling and confused and lost. And they're still saying things like, what's my boss is a jerk. Mm -hmm. Or, um, and and in your books, you've talked a lot about the projection and transference that happens for people. Um, So if you, there's a way to talk about that so people can understand that it's not just the reality that's out there, that's they're co-creating this based on their psyche. And so how do you help them think about reality and how they're a part of it, not just the victim of it.
0: Sure. One of the most important things is for people to recognize that in every scene of that long running soap opera we call our life, is that you are the only person who is present in every scene. Mm-hmm. So you, Even though you suffer or experience the consequences of other people's choices in your life, obviously, um, you also make choices and in reactions, and you tend to build up patterns of reactions. People have often said, where do I start this process? And I say, well, start with your life passion, uh, p- patterns, uh, particularly the ones that you find nonproductive or mm-hmm. troubling in your life in terms of the consequences and say, what we do is logical if you understand the emotional premise that's been triggered inside of me. In other words, none of us sets out to do self-destructive things or uh, non-productive things. But we do on a daily basis to some degree. What is it that's been triggered in me? And what is it that I need to look at and address? I had a a client who had been in an AA group in in Houston many years ago. And he said the saying in his group was wonderful. And I I steal it every chance I get. He said, our saying is this isn't working for me, but I've learned to do it very well. You Mm -hmm. see? That's true for
3: all of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, adaptation. That you know, how much of daily life is routinized? How much of it is reflexive in character? How much is stimulus response? And it leads to the buildup of those patterns, and it's it's difficult to break those patterns.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's why our psyche throws up signals of distress. So from an analytic standpoint, we don't we don't want to repress the symptoms. We want to say, why have they come? What are they asking of us? All right. And if your boss is a jerk, what are you going to do about that? You can't make him a non-jerk So you can either adapt a psychology that says I work here for these other good reasons and, and wear Teflon when I work with this person or I change my employment. But, you know, it's like, don't, don't think that you're going to spend, you know, some kind of energy and it's all going to transform. You, you, you have to make a decision inside about what that's going to mean for you. And that's what it means to be an adult, to be wholly accountable for that. If the other is problematic, it's OK, what is my accountability here? Am I contributing to that? If so, I can address that. And if, if not, then I need to look at some possible changes in my outer environment and these are difficult choices but the worst of all is to feel that one has no choice the worst Mm -hmm. you know i'm stuck here forever the worst and and most people frankly are intimidated by the magnitude of the project of taking on that personal authority
2: oh my gosh yes
0: (laughs) they're going to be alone they're afraid that they're because they don't particularly like their own company let's put it that way and and secondly, that the, the project is so demanding for the rest of your life. You have to be accountable for what's going on in your life. It sounds so simple, but one's not really a grown up until one accepts that and lifts that on a daily basis.
2: And I think to what you said earlier, there's a risk. When yeah. I step in and I take personal authority, man, like this, this thing could go sideways or it could impact people negatively it might be something that my soul is urging but gosh it could there's a risk to it also and i think a lot of people Mm -hmm. struggle with am i ready to take that risk and see where this thing goes
1: Mm -hmm. um well yeah i and right that's that's a good point shell um i'm thinking you know so uh, a lot of us feel like we're discouraged because we feel like our personalities are very entrenched. Though that we are who we are, and you know, and actually, I mean, so for the past ten or twenty years, neuro, neuro, the neuroscience field has been help trying to help us see. Look, there's this plasticity, and you can, you can change even you know all of your life. Uh, So let's I mean, but I've also heard you talk about uh, this idea that I think you were referring to Jung's statement when you said, you know, we can't fix our problems, but we can grow larger than them. So when it does come to our personalities and these entrenched behaviors how what's what does wisdom tell us what's the best way to approach trying to disrupt the patterns do we go in to fix them or do we think forward try beyond them what what would you advise
0: well of course it varies with the person and the circumstances and it may be all of the above but you know sooner or later it has to hurt enough that one has to desire change you know the old joke Mm -hmm therapist does it take to change the light bulb and the answer is only one but the bulb has to want to change you see
1: <laughs> i hadn't heard that one that's so good
0: glad i've introduced that to your your, uh, your grab bag here
1: yes love it
0: and it reminds me of the joke in new jersey it's like how, how many union guys does it take to change a light bulb in new jersey and the answer is 11 you you got a problem with that you know
3: <laughs> <laughs> right well, that's good
0: any point um you know underneath all of this one has to again come back to large questions why am i here really in service to what and th- those are open ended questions that one needs to to ask the rest of one's life um before we began we were, you were just asking me about uh, health considerations because in the last 3 years i've spent more time in hospitals than i have anywhere else but I can assure you that part of that well part of that was a very appreciative uh, uh, grasp of the fact that my wife was so present with me during that journey but secondly so was my work I never stopped to think of never there's never a day I didn't reflect on the nature of my work and ask myself what's my task now in the face of circumstances over which I may have no control What is my task here? And we always have a task and you can usually identify that. In the book, Swamplands of the Soul, I said sooner or later, life takes us to very difficult places. And there's always a task waiting there in the face of despair. How do you how do you act now, you know, in the face of depression or loss or, or whatever the circumstances may be? What is your task here? And if you don't know, you keep asking that question until it becomes clear. It might awaken you at three in the morning. But you see, your psyche's been working on that. One of the things we need to do is have a conversation with our own psyche. I I metaphorically say sometimes, if I need to make a decision, and it can be as mundane as how do I start a new book or an essay, or a very, very practical issue where I'm thinking about a client, I sort of put it in there. And I think the little people running around inside somewhere work on it and they get back to me always, but it's on their schedule, not mine. It's not on my desk as a memo at 5 p.m. Today, it'll come at three o'clock, two or three days from now. I'll wake up and there it is, or I'll be driving somewhere and I'm distracted and, and there's a voice that comes from the inside that tells me what's the right course here now. I don't think I was in touch with that sufficiently when I was a, a young person. Maybe as a child, yes. But then your summons to the outer world causes you to, to leave that connection. So everybody, I think, has to re-find a connection. Emily Dickinson, in 1864, wrote an aphorism that I find very illustrative of this. She says, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can.
3: Hmm.
0: A sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. And that was her way of recognizing the erosion of external societal and institutional authority in her time. And the very you know perceptive um, in- intuition that increasingly people are going to have to find their own personal guidance system, their own personal compass. And if you know that you have a compass inside of you, and you risk trusting it, it, it will tell you what is right for you over time. Now, again, this is a discernment process. There are many voices within us. And in fact, there's a lot of traffic in there all the time. So discernment means sitting and sorting through these voices. And there will be the voices of the parents, the voices of the um, um, you know world you grew up in, the voices of popular culture. And you have to separate some of that chaff from the voice of your own depths, and if you can do that, and it is possible, um, then you can access some sense of what is your calling. It's not necessarily something that's going to make you comfortable. You touched Mm -hmm. on before one of the dilemmas, if I choose this path, it could risk my relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very difficult question, you know. For example, let's say I'm in a marriage, and I find that the marriage is dead, you know, what do I do about that? Uh, do I perpetuate that? Uh, wh- what do I do about that? And let's just say it's a it's a a good marriage. But then there are other calls. It's like how do you do that? Well, figure out a way to honor both of those values, and it may require an enormous amount of effort on your part. But then that's what you do.
1: Well, let me just add to that because that actually was a question I was going to right now. As you were, th- I was. I was thinking about how you say, you know, ask these fundamental questions of who am I and in service of of to what. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I feel like a lot of people are so uncomfortable really authentically digging in and asking those questions because, you know, they have been doing this conventional thing. Maybe they have been providing for their family Mm -hmm. or they have been doing things that are Good and correct behavior. and if they what what if the answer is something that's quite countercultural or really disruptive? I think you're speaking to that right now
0: sure. and then and then you have to suffer that conflict within you until your path emerges.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what is meaningful. That's the point. You don't make an impulsive decision when i use the word discernment i said sorting and sifting over time yeah that means you know if it takes a year to work through this then then it's important enough to give it that kind of uh, frame um you know these these are not easy questions if they were easy then we would have solved them easily enough um and you know you're Callings are, you know, (laughs) complexes have calls, too. They say, hey, do this or do that. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, tomorrow's another day. Have some chocolate. I mean, those voices Mm -hmm. are inside of all of us. I mentioned in the Middle Passage, the gremlins at the foot of the bed every morning. Fear and lethargy.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Fear says it's too much for you. You can't handle this. Just chill out. And lethargy says, you know, turn on the telly, have some chocolate. Listen to Oprah and tomorrow it'll all go away, you see. Um, those, those are the enemies of life, fear and lethargy. And if you realize that, then there, there are no outer enemies, you know, um, it's, we project our fear, we project our envy, we project the unlived life, all these things on other people. If we can own that for ourselves, we have to realize that what I have to face is, are the limits of my fear and the seduction of, of that part of me that wants, you know, an easy path. There's an old, um, I think it's far eastern saying, and why should your path be easier than those who have gone before you? Mm. It's interesting to comment, because then I realized, well, no, I'm not entitled to have an easy journey just because I want one, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here to live this life as meaningfully as I can. And if I don't like it, then I can change it. Now, change is, you know, talk is cheap. Change is difficult. It always costs something. If it doesn't cost something. It's a pseudo problem again. So you have to weigh costs. Not to change has a cost too. That's the, that's the other side of it. Hmm. So not to decide has cost and uh immense cost and that's why jung said the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent you see i mean that's a that's a very telling comment and properly needs to haunt us if we're parents to say yes blocked by fear because my children are going to pick that up whether they know what they're experiencing or not they internalize that and they'll either Similarly, be blocked in other areas like this in their life, or they'll be spending their time trying to get unblocked and working through something that their their parent did not do.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That that's certainly an encouragement, I think, to live our own journey as best we can. It's not selfish because it's not about the ego cho- choosing. You see, it's it's about the ego recognizing. Something here is so important that I have to give my energy to it. And and that's a form of service, you see.
2: So, okay. I want to ask you about the collective unconscious. That's, um, I'm so um, intrigued. I don't know if that's the right word. Between the ideas between the individual and systems. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of who we work with, clients that we see, people that come into our work, they are really noble caregivers. That's how I would kind of define. They are clergy. They are teachers. They are physicians. They are nonprofit professional, professionals. They are people that care deeply about their employees, um, you know, leaders. And I see that they're bearing the weight of, you know, a collective kind of system of, of unreality, of not tuning into kind of human needs. And so they're bearing the weight of a lot of societies. I always think of it like kind of dumping these expectations on these people. And they're the ones that are burning out. Um, They have chronic disease, like so much is symptomatically happening. So I would love to hear your perspective on what might be happening in the shadow, this kind of collective shadow, culturally, that we are... Um, putting so much burden on what I see as empathic caregivers to bear the weight of so much of society to the point where they're like, peace out, like, I'm quiet quitting, or I'm just not going to do this anymore. Um, sure. What's this revealing about who we are?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, uh, just a technical vocabulary here, clarification, When when we talk about the collective unconscious, we're talking there about the fact that All humans have similar psychic structuring processes. So you can have dream images tonight, or you can endorse certain cultural values that that have been, that are ancient, that are in some way replicated in other cultures. So it's coming out of your common human nature. But you've really raised a specific issue, and that is the issue of the wounded healer. That... (laughs) they and I've written on this subject and spoken on it in fact one of the recent books has a whole chapter on the wounded healer and I forget which one at the moment but people who are in the caregiving professions are often people not always but there's a high percentage here have come from troubled families of origin and they learned early as children sensitive children to make adaptations perhaps to sacrifice some of their own agenda in service to trying to stabilize the, um, you know, troubled environment of the family. So they get identified with that, and they wind up in self-sacrificing professions. Now, that doesn't mean they're not called to be a surgeon or called to be a social worker or called to be a cleric or whatever. They may be or they may not be. See, the power of that complex can be so great that it can push aside everything else that wishes expression in their lives mm-hmm. so that they just wind up doing that. I can't tell you how many physicians I've worked with through the years who said basically it was all a way of pleasing their parents. Mm-hmm. And then they managed to wind up in the jungle of managed care and insurance companies and so forth. And as one physician said to me, "Now, I spend more time filling out forms on my computer than I ever do talking to my patients, you see. So there are not many happy lawyers and not many happy doctors and not many happy dentists and so forth and a lot of burnout therapists as you as you all know. So what happens is the power of the complex is so great that it breaks down the self-care system. So one stops exercising, one stops taking uh you know psychological breaks at times. One one uh, you know continues to push something to the point that one is is uh you know, really exhausted. And when that happens, you know, the the caregiver suffers burnout, depression, et cetera, et cetera. And some people need to leave the profession to save their lives. Some people need to take more breaks. Some people have to recognize that one of the great fallacies that's often buried in the wounded healer complex is the fantasy that we fix people or that we're charged with curing them when in fact you can do neither but all you can do is be present to their journey and try to be helpful in terms of how you frame your conversation with that person it's a far more limited expectation than the fact that you're going to fix them somehow
3: mm-hmm.
0: so it's 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 a profound issue and almost no attention is given to this in the training of our physicians and clerics and so forth you know it's all about technique and um, information about how to do this or do that, but very little about what's going on inside of you. Yeah. And what is it that really draws you to this work? And and recognize the symptoms of burnout. You can do this work very well, perhaps, because you, you have the skills to do so. But is it really a calling? And it can also be true for a certain stage of one's life, and one needs to move in a different direction. Mm-hmm. I've Therapists, for example, to quit and go off and become painters, for example, mm-hmm. you know, or people to go off and follow some other interest that they had developed along the way, and it saves their life. And others continue to suffer and mm-hmm. and you know are miserable and they have a, a kind of walking depression all the time. So uh, the irony is often the person who is trying to be most helpful is the most unconscious person in the room. Yeah. That's the paradox. It doesn't. We're not questioning their motive, but we're mm-hmm. what is it that has taken possession of their ego consciousness and is directing their lives? And it may or may not be in service to their well-being, and often is not the case. Could you briefly
2: define complex for our listeners, and specifically maybe the wounded healer complex?
0: The the complex is simply is a neutral word, like airport complex, apartment complex. It's a structure. But we have complexes because we've had life experience. So if you tell a baby not to touch the stove, sooner or later it's going to. It now has an experience. And what used to be an interesting, shiny object now is something that has, let's say some momentary pain connected with it. Well, there's there's a cluster of energy in there around that. Now, years later, that can be triggered, that can be activated. Um, Or we have parental complexes because we have such powerful experiences of utter vulnerability and receptivity as infants and children to the folks around us. And so we internalize their dynamics, their attitudes, their behaviors, etc. And all of that inside of us becomes a series of sort of provisional identities, Jung called them splinter personalities, you know? So we all have a frightened child inside. We all have a compliant child inside. We all have an avoidant child inside. And which one is activated in any given moment? So a person could be at a board meeting today, it'd be 40 years old or 60 years old, and they wish to say something, but but for some reason that they don't know, they're unable to say it, or they walk away chagrined once again. You realize the complex took over. Because at some point in their life, having spoken up, produced consequences that were difficult or costly. And so without even knowing it, the complex has usurped the ego, executed its its plan, its splinter script, and it's producing the same old, same old. It's one of the reasons we have patterns. That's why I said if you look at your patterns and you realize in every pattern, there is an an idea, there is a strategy, and I can work back and say, now what kind of quote idea, unquote, inside of me, perhaps an unconscious idea, would have given rise to that behavior or created or added to this pattern? And then you begin to realize, well, okay, it's understandable that I might feel some vulnerability in speaking up, but I also as an adult and as a human being want to have my values valued I want to be able to express myself, so there's where the traffic jam occurs. You know, at some point, consciousness can tip that balance. I do a lot of public speaking, um, mostly on Zoom these days, and um, always feel miserable beforehand. And I just say to myself, "That's that's your old, you uh, know, neurosis, right? I mean, I know what it is. I have no energy. I think everybody knows this anyhow. My body hurts all over." And the moment I start talking, it disappears. What happens? Right. Well, the, the ego then starts functioning in terms of the importance of our conversation and all of the other stuff gets pushed aside. Does it go away? No, it's going to be there the next time. But see, there's there's what Jung meant. You don't. What, what if I said, well, I'm not going to do that. What if I said when you sent me your invitation to join you in this conversation? Well, I'd like to, but, you know, I'm 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 really afraid to. I might say something stupid or somebody might disagree with me. I mean, that's an archaic voice that's in most people. So there has to be something else in me that says, no, but this is important. If I care about these issues and these matters and if I feel certain things have been helpful to me, why would you not share that with others? So in in that moment, you see there are two conversations going on, and I have to, in some way, decide which one is the one I want to give my life to, and that's when you you show up. I, I in in one of the books I talk about my de facto motto. It's shut up, suit up, and show up. And mm-hmm. Shut up is that. a reminder that says, um, you know, stop whining, you know. <laughs> everybody has difficulty there are people who have no roof over their head there are people who don't have food today there are people whose children are being killed what are you complaining about so secondly um you know show up suit up means do your homework prepare don't expect it to be simple engage what needs to be engaged and thirdly just show up and do the best you can that's all you can do just show up you don't win this game. The point is to realize it is a game, and you're here to participate in the way that is most meaningful to you, and hopefully most consistent with the terrain of your own uh, soul as possible. And- so good.
1: Yeah. So good. Love. Love this. Uh, and you know, really. Not to be too cliche, we could talk for a very long time about all of this. And we appreciate your time and energy that you're giving uh, to this particular conversation. So we are going to only hit you with one final question here. Uh, and because I was curious, I've also I've heard you talking. I don't know how long someone had lived by this amount of time, but I think it might have been 80 years. And you had said if they were 80, they have dreamed for six complete years of their life. Something yeah. something to that effect. And this is what strikes me, and what I'm trying to get to in this question is could you overall could you just kind of tell us about how the psyche speaks to us? But what but what I'm struck by is how we kind of ignore it or feel sort of vaguely like it's an archaic thing speaking to us but how really essential it is and how nature has created this mechanism to speak because nature doesn't waste nature's
0: time. Right. No, no, no. There's, there's something in you that knows what's right for you all the time, but we, we lost contact that with that a long time ago, by and large through the necessary adaptations that life demands of us. So, You have a voice in your society, including family of origin, and it goes out in widening circles, and you have a voice of the soul, and in time, the need for adaptation causes you to lose that contact. So to address the question, how does the psyche speak to you? Well, in various venues, first of all, the feeling function. Now, we all know we have feelings, and we can either ignore them or distract them, anesthetize them, project them onto others, but we all have them you do not make up your feelings. It's not a conscious act. It's it's an autonomous response of the psyche to how things are going. I can ignore them. Let's say I'm in a challenging career or I'm doing something with my energies and I, I realize that I, it doesn't feel right. I don't enjoy it. It's not purposeful. Well, what has just weighed in there? An important Testimony from something inside of me that the psyche is not supporting me with the feeling function. If what I'm doing is right, something there will support you. Related to that is the energy, are the energy systems. When you're doing what's right, you're flush with energy and you push it through. We can mobilize energy. That's how we get up to feed the baby at three in the morning and change the diaper. But if you keep pushing energies in the direction that is wrong for you it's going to lead to that burnout and, and so forth we've talked about um, but when you're doing what's right for you the energy supports you thirdly we do dream and as you mentioned if you live to 80 you've spent six years of your life dreaming, which is extraordinary amount of time and it tells us whether we pay attention or not the psyche is processing and met- perhaps metabolizing the magnitude of stimuli that come to us in any 24-hour period and and more importantly if you start to pay attention to what constructs your dreams and you realize they're purposeful and they they represent a form of communication as as Jung said there's a two million year old person inside of you and wouldn't it pay make sense to pay attention once in a while and ask what that two million year old person has to say to you and then fourthly is the question of meaning. It's the hardest to define, but it is the most important is if what you're doing is meaningful, then you can push through whatever you need to push through. That's why if you're sacrificing in a, in a healthy way for another person, it's, it's, as, as the word suggests, something is sacred about that and it carries you through. But if the meaning is not there, the ego consciousness in the long run is simply going to exhaust itself by continuing to push. So in in the end, if, if you're doing what's right for you, the psyche will make it meaningful. As Jung said, the smallest things with meaning are always greater than the largest of things without meaning. So if your culture says the whole idea is go out and make a lot of money, okay, go do that. And look around some of the people that apparently spent their life making a lot of money. Do you really want their lives? I mean, what, what we learn from that hmm. to sound moralistic. I want to be very pragmatic. Yeah, you have to have enough money to pay your bills, support your family, etc. But at some point, you have to realize that behavior, that complex now owns you. It's driving your life. And it's not going to be there for you when life gets difficult as sooner or later it will. So the question of meaning is most important because we don't create it. We experience its presence or its absence, but we don't make it. But we are still tasked with the decisions that can bring us to places where the experience is meaningful. So I'll give you a quick example. My early life was in academia, and I still love teaching. I, I grew to hate academia, but I love teaching. And so it caused me to leave a tenured position at a university that people would have you know, fought to have and to walk out into a private practice. And I've, I've never looked back because I found the conversations one-on-one with individuals went to a, a deeper and more meaningful place than occurred in the classroom without you know, in any way discarding the value of teaching. So that's why I have interviews like this. I consider it part of the classroom. It's part of the, the teaching function. But that's meaningful to me. It's not to somebody else. And that's not for me to decide that. It's for me to decide what are the choices that will take me to the places that are meaningful and what are the choices I'm making or my complexes are making or the pressures around me are making for me that are taking me further and further away from what is meaningful to me.
2: If I may have one last question and then and then we will let you go. But so your new book, A Life of Meaning, Relocating Your Center of Spiritual Gravity. Um, of course, we're gonna promote the heck out of this. We'll have it in our show notes. Relocating. I think we've we've kind of touched on that, but relocating mm-hmm. is shifting, it's changing. There's some, there's a transition. Could you? Just um I guess as we close out relocating, talk like briefly about that word and what you mean by relocating the center of spiritual gravity.
0: Well, you know gravity is a force field of energy it pulls you uh it, it links you to something solid. You have it as a child, but as I said you you cannot ex- execute the child's agenda a child sooner or later has to enter the world and surrender to its demands. And even if you're reluctant to do that, you still have to deal with it. Um, relocating the center of spiritual gravity is, is recognized sooner or later, as I've just suggested through these four four arenas. You um, have to realize that what is right for you is inside of you. And that the best source of making decisions is going to come from inside, not from outside. We don't ignore the practical world. You still have to pay your bills, support your family, et cetera. But how do I find a way in which I can honor this within me that is seeking expression in the world through me? That's a meaningful question. And if it causes suffering, so it does. Uh, there's a saying from the Middle Ages, suffering often is the fastest horse to completion. It's that which quickens my attention and makes me aware of something. So, again, if we're doing what's right for us, our systems inside of us that are part of our instinctual heritage will support that. And when we're doing what's wrong for us, they'll send out their protests and we call those protest symptoms. And and, you know, rather than repress the symptoms, try to run ahead of them or anesthetize them or medicate them away. We have to ask, you know, again, why have they come? What are they asking of me? Quick example, when I was in midlife and had to make the decision about what I was going to do with the second half of life, I was in a deep depression. And at the time, of course, people wanted to give me tons of medication. And ultimately, I had to ask the question, why has my psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from the places where my ego consciousness is investing? Now, that's not a question that would have occurred to me until the psyche reacted autonomously to take me to that difficult place. I was forced to ask that question. And, and, and many times people don't even ask the question then, why has my psyche done this? They'd rather say, well, just take care of the symptoms as quickly as possible. Take a pill. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to then say, well, there are certain areas of your life which are, are feeling oppressed. They're depressed. Something's pressed down here. Something is wanting to come up, express itself and and emerge. And it's time you start paying attention to that if you don't, then the intensity of the symptoms will increase.
2: Dr. James Hollis, thank you.
1: Yeah, what a rich conversation. Thanks so much for uh, being here with us. Um, Shelly is the one who introduced me to you with the middle passage. I would say it was in the late 90s. Uh, this book, A Life of Meaning is Rich. She took the copy that I was mailed <laughs> and has co-opted it i'm still reading it um but can't wait to keep getting to it and i i want to go back and do a retrospective and check out some of your other stuff we'll put links in the show notes for everyone you want to tell everybody where they can uh, learn
0: more about you and find you um really i don't care if they do or not (laughs) um, there's jameshollis.net okay you know and the purpose of that is it does include often public programs through zoom that people are invited to attend they're more than welcome to uh, jump in on those so that's certainly a possible contribution to your audience here
2: yeah but the the, the book the books gosh they alone they stand on they stand for themselves and they are transformational Uh, if people are ready for them that's what i would say i think when you're in that space and you're open uh, you're ready to be confronted a little bit then this book will will impact you so thank you so much for being here and for your time and and your wisdom
0: thank you very much for inviting me and i wish you well and and uh, you're doing good work and i hope you continue it
2: thank you appreciate that
1: We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life, to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. I think what James Hollis is sharing with us is to listen to our life and to take the risk to consider what it really means to live an examined life, especially if you're ready for it and if you feel like you might be being called to something a little bit different in the second half of life. Maybe you feel a little oppressed. Maybe you feel a little depressed and something's trying to rise up to the surface like he talked about. I think it's definitely worth re-listening to uh, so many of the points he made in this discussion because it was one of our richer discussions and many, many just brilliant, gleaming points that he made. You know where to find us at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one coaching, as well as trainings and workshops for organizations, big and small. And we would love to see you at the Burnout to Big Self Facebook group. It's a growing group, got a lot of engagement there, and we want you to be a part of it. We cover it all from the physical work of the nervous system regulation, emotional and psychological work. We touch on vocational and even spiritual work of rediscovering your true nature. We give a lot of wonderful content away. So check it out if you would, the Burnout to Big Self Facebook group. Love to see you there. And here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.